Certainly appreciate your prayers this morning. I always do. may not always say it, but I do want to say it often enough that you know how important it is uh, that the minister of the gospel needs the prayers of the children of God. This morning I'd like to begin in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now, sometimes when you read the Bible, you read figurative language, sometimes you read symbolic language, but the majority of the time, the greater portion of the time, when you read the Bible, you can take it literally. So we have a real person here in the Lord Jesus Christ who's speaking to a real person that refers to as Simon, of course we know it's Peter. The question is, is Satan real? Or is he a figment of your imagination? Is he just something that Jesus brought up and made up or whatever, or is Satan real? Well, I can assure you Satan is just as real as God is. Sometimes I think God's people do not take Satan as seriously as they should because they can't see him. Just like you can't see the Lord Jesus Christ with these natural eyes, we see him with the eyes of faith that God has given us by his marvelous free gift of regeneration. But just because we can't see Satan doesn't mean he doesn't exist. I can assure you he did and does. So the Lord is speaking, first of all, to all of his disciples here. Notice the language he says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. Now when you're reading the King James translation, the words thee, thou, and thine are always singular. The word you is always plural. Now, if I, I may use the word you in a singular way or a plural way. But when you read the word you in the scripture, it's always plural. So when the Lord here says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, he's talking to the twelve. He's not just talking to Simon specifically. He's talking to the twelve. Because the devil wants to have all of us. The devil wants to have you and me, and he wanted all 12 of those apostles. So he says, Simon, Simon. We notice here, addressed him by his name that he had from his birth, Simon, Simon, and he repeats it. Usually when you read in the Bible where somebody repeats somebody's name twice, it's for emphasis sake. Something out of the ordinary maybe is going to follow. You look in the book of Exodus chapter three and verse four, you find where Moses uh, is in the wilderness and he sees a bush that's burning but not consumed. And the Lord says to him, Moses, Moses, take the shoes off your feet for the ground you stand on is holy ground. In Luke chapter 10, the Lord's in the home of a woman named of Martha. She has a sister by the name of Mary and a brother by the name of Lazarus. And the Lord says unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art coming about with much serving. And Mary had chosen a good part, 
Where was Mary? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was a wonderful woman, given the hospitality. But she was too concerned with some of the affairs of life that you have to take care of on a daily basis. But you can set aside when things more important are before you. And I don't know of anything more important this morning for you to be here in the house of God, in the Lord's house. Oh, if you were at home, you could be taking care of some things, but I can assure you when you get back, they'll still be there. <laughs> you don't have to worry about them being gone. They'll be there. You take care of them when you get back home. I guess that's what you call putting first things first. And the Lord said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added unto you. Acts chapter 9, we find where the Lord strikes down a man by the name of Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Of course, we know this was Paul, known by Saul of Tarsus, before his name was changed later on. So the Lord says, Simon, Simon here. He repeats his name, Simon, Simon. Now, the first time that the Lord met Simon, we find it recorded in John chapter 1. We find where Simon's brother... Andrew comes to him and says, we have found the Messiah. And he brings Simon to where the Lord is. But we notice he doesn't introduce him to the Lord. Simon doesn't tell the Lord who he is. The Lord just simply says, Simon, the art and the son of Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. You see, in biblical days, people didn't have last names. And therefore, a lot of people went with the same first name. So how are you going to know which person you're talking about? You know, if you just call the first name. So there were attachments given to names. Here, this Simon is Simon Barjona. When you study the names of the 12 apostles, you know there was another Simon. There were two Simons, just like there were two by the name of Judas. We might say more about that later on. So here he says, Simon, Simon, Satan had desired to have you, talking about all of them here, to do what? To sift you as wheat. It's just an expression saying that he wants to influence you greatly. He wants to sidetrack you. He wants to cause you to fall by the wayside. Satan has desired to have thee to sift thee as wheat. When you sift something, you separate it. You shake it. You separate it. My mother used to sift flour, you know. Uh, she would take that shift, sifter and she'd just shake that thing, you know. Uh, it gets the fine separated from the coarse. And so Satan is a sifter. He likes to shake God's people. He likes to turn their lives upside down. He likes to influence their mind, influence their heart, influence their feelings, influence their emotions. So he says, Satan has desired to have thee, uh, that he may sift you as wheat. But the Lord says, but I prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art, now he's talking to Simon specifically, Thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And this is where Peter replies and says unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. We know this is keeping with Peter, don't we? How Peter would respond right off the cuff. How he would speak before he thought. You ever done that? You know people who do that on a regular basis? We all do it from time to time, but some people make a habit of it. Some people are just good at it. Some people specialize at it. You know, their words are spoken before their brain gets engaged. And so we have here uh, Peter just responding immediately to what the Lord just told him. Now, the Lord just gave him a severe warning. In fact, it's basically a prophetic statement of what's going to happen. Satan hath desired to have thee to sift thee as wheat. 
And when they aren't converted, I mean, he's going to go through a process where he's going to need to be converted. When they aren't converted, go and strengthen thy brethren. Now, Satan had already made some inroads. Of those 12 apostles, one was named Judas Iscariot. Now, again, there's two by the name of Judas, but we're talking about Judas Iscariot. Every time you read his name in the four Gospels, there's something attached to it. It's the word betrayer. In one place, it is a traitor. And that's what he was. He was a betrayer. He was a traitor. Now, interesting to me, uh, you know, we all have attachments to our names, and you may not know what it is. But I can assure you, you've got one. Somebody's already given you one. You may not know it, but you do. Now, Rahab was known as Rahab the harlot. But the expression, the harlot, wasn't given unto her in the beginning. It was given unto her after she'd lived the type of life to where that would be appropriate to put to her name, Rahab. But we notice here that the word traitor and betrayer is given to Judas before he ever betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. It's given ahead of time. But it's there every single time. Also, when you read the names of the apostles, you read them first of all in the opening verses of Matthew 10. You read them also in Luke chapter 6. And you read them in Acts chapter 1. You find Peter is always the first one mentioned. You find Judas's character is always the last one mentioned. Now, Judas, according to the Lord in John 6, 70, the Lord said, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? I don't know how you get much plainer than that. He said, I've chosen twelve, and one of you twelve is a devil. Now, we find prior to this time where Satan had already began his work with Judas. You look over in the 22nd chapter, in the beginning of this chapter here, you'll find where the Bible says in the opening verses, it's time of the Passover, etc. And the officials of that day were looking for an opportunity to, and uh, conspiring against Jesus, to capture him and to take his life. And the Bible says that Satan had entered in to Judas. Notice this, he'd entered into this man, entered into Judas. And Judas met with the chief priests and the scribes in them, and they coveted with him to give him money to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And he made a promise that he would do that, and he sought opportunity to do such. In John chapter 13, after the Lord had washed the disciples' feet, we find where he says, One of you shall betray me. Now they all begin to look at each other and themselves, really. When you study the four Gospels, you'll find when the Lord said that, that they turn, all turned and asked the question, Is it I? That's an important point. They didn't say, I believe I know who it is. Matthew didn't say, I've had my eye on, you know, Andrew for a while. I've had my eye on James for a while. I, I believe that's who it is. Not a single one of them said that. They all turn the finger to their self. That's exactly what we always need to do as a husband, as a wife, as a church member. If there's a problem, first of all, look within your own self, and oftentimes you can solve it without getting anybody else involved. Is it I? That's what they're doing. Is it I? And the Lord said, it's going to be the one that I give the sop to. And he gave the sop to Judas Iscariot, and the Bible says then Satan entered into him to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already got Judas, one of the twelve, you see. And Judas, everything Judas came in contact with, he defiled it. 
First of all, his name. You know what the word Judas, it comes to the word Judah. Judah was the fourth son born unto Abraham, uh, excuse me, unto Jacob. The word Judah means praise. Well, his life was anything but praise to God, right? Right the opposite. He defiled his own name. And being enlisted with those other men as the apostles, those other 11 men were honorable men. But he, he defiled the band of the apostles. And then in John chapter 12, remember this is where Mary comes. And she takes a very expensive box of ointment and breaks it. And she anoints the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then she takes the hair of her head and she wipes, uh, the, you know, wipes all the way down to his feet and, and dried his feet with the very hair of her head. You know what the response of Judas was? He says, why was this not sold for 300 pence worth, which is almost a year's wages, and given to the poor? She honored the Lord, and the Lord defended her. Even the gifts. See, Judas was the one who carried the treasure. He had the bag. Of the twelve, there was a bag where free will offerings was put, given to Christ and his apostles, and they were put into that bag. That's how they lived from day to day. You will not find any of this money coming from the hands of fishermen who fished and got money and put it in there. It come from mainly sisters and women who ministered to the Lord of their substance. That's where it came from. That's where it went into. And Judas was a thief. The Lord says he was. The Lord said he didn't say this because he cared for the poor. He said because he was a thief and he carried the bag. He saw a lost opportunity, in other words. This is the character I'm trying to paint for you here. The Bible paints for us of this man that the Lord said, I've not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. That's Judas Iscariot. He's got him. And then just a little bit before this, you're reading where these apostles, after hearing the Lord tell them what was going to happen to his life, you find the apostles beginning to discuss among themselves who shall be the greatest. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> How you could walk with Jesus Christ for three and a half years, hear his teaching, see his miracles, know he was a son of God, and now on the, on the you know, right getting close to the time he's going to lay his life down, they're talking about who's going who's to be the greatest. And when you compare Mark's account to Luke's account, you'll find in Mark's account where it says there was a dispute among them, and Luke tells us there was strife among them. Is there, any, is there any surprise there that you got a group of people and they're responding in a carnal manner, in a carnal way, and they're talking about who's going to be the, the highest, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, that's nothing but carnal thinking. That's nothing but self-exaltation. And when you get that taking place in a group of people, there's going to be strife and there's going to be disputings. That's the one thing in the Lord's church that we're taught repeatedly in God's Word. We're all on the same level. By nature, we're all depraved. <laughs> by nature, we're all sinners. And by grace, we're all children of God. Children of God, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all on the same level. There's no different classes. One for the rich, one for the poor, one for the brethren, one for the sisters, one for the elderly, one for the young, etc., etc. We're all one in Jesus Christ. All on the same level. Nobody's got a right to think they're any better than anybody else. Matter of the color of your skin, matter of your checkbook, or anything else, everybody needs to understand by nature we're the same, and by grace we're the same. So it's interesting. This has just taken place. This has just been said. And then the Lord says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have 
you. Now he's talking to the whole group. Now I want you to get a scene here. All the way through the Bible, there's a consistency. And this is one of the evidences the Bible has been given a divine inspiration. And I mentioned this last Sunday. There is a consistency from Genesis to Revelation of the Lord's children being referred to as sheep. Now, how did all these different writers, 40-plus writers over a period of 1,500 years, how did they all have in mind that the Lord's people ought to be called sheep? <laughs> because they were all human writers, and there's just one author of God's Word, and that's God himself. So, I want you to have a scene here. Here are the apostles, or or 12 in number this time, and they're a flock of sheep. And here is Satan described over in 1 Peter 5 and 6 and 7 as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you've seen uh, documentaries and you've seen things on TV of safaris and one thing and another. And you can always see the tiger. You can always see the lion as he's crouched behind the bushes, you know, and everything, he's hiding himself, but he's watching a herd of animals. Sometimes they're zebras, sometimes they're different ones, antelope or whatever it may be. And he's trying to pick out the weak. He's trying to pick out the, the, the smallest one, the slowest one, the weakest one, the, maybe one that's sick and can hardly get around because he knows when he pounces, they're going to be easy prey. That's the scene I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the devil himself as that roaring lion and he's crouched down and he's looking at a, a flock of sheep and if he has an opportunity, he's going to try to do something very serious to them. That's why we read in Acts 20 and 28 where Paul tells the elders at Ephesus, he says, take heed unto yourselves and to the flock, the flock of which the Holy Ghost hath made you the overseer of. That word overseer means superintendent. The flock doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ has put him in charge of taking care of that flock. Taking care of the flock means feeding the flock. It means leading the flock, guiding the flock, protecting the flock, showing care and concern and compassion for the flock. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed the flock. Take heed yourselves and to the flock of God which is among you to feed the flock of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. They've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and now the overseer is to feed that flock. Peter himself, when you read the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, you cannot read this chapter without believing that Peter has many of his experiences in mind as he wrote this chapter. But he starts off and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, he says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking uh, the oversight thereof. Notice the oversight, overseer, oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy Luke's sake, but of a ready mind. He tells you how not to take it, how to take it. Then he says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory which fadeth not away. There's a chief shepherd and there's an under shepherd. The under-shepherd is trying to do everything that the chief shepherd has done, will do, does it perfectly, uh, you know, without failure in any way whatsoever. Obviously, we know that uh, that's the standard, and that, can't take, uh, that cannot be accomplished, but that's always the goal. So here we have Satan, our adversary. And Satan, on this occasion here, has his eyes on all these apostles. And he wants to sift them as wheat, but now the Lord turns to Peter in particular. He says, Satan hath desired to have thee to sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. 
And when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Now, Peter here has the warning that Satan has desired to have him and to sift him as wheat. But on the other hand, he has the declaration, and when thou art converted, be converted is to make a turnaround. When thou art converted, you go and you strengthen thy brother. He would not be in position to strengthen the brother until he had been converted, you see. Now, Peter was a strong man. Peter was a courageous man. Peter was a fisherman by trade. Fishermen by trade, if that was their profession, they had to understand many different things to be successful. They had to understand the importance of teamwork, cooperation, supporting one another, helping one another, working together. But they had to be courageous men, and they had to be uh, brave and courageous men. They had to be strong men. You notice in John chapter 21, when the, the apostles catch a great net full of fish, 150 and 3, the Bible says there's great fishes, they begin to try to drag it to shore. Peter got out of the boat, swam to shore, meet Jesus first. And after Jesus spoke to him, the Bible says, then Peter went and dragged a net full of fishes himself. Now, I doubt seriously he did that by himself. I imagine he had some assistance, but the Bible doesn't say he did. The Bible says he did it. Uh, drag that great net of fishes, of a hundred, great fish of 153 that the disciples were having trouble to begin with, and Peter goes and drags it ashore himself. Maybe his adrenaline was really pumping. Okay, maybe his adrenaline was really flowing. But Peter was a strong man. My question at this point is this. What good did his strength do him in his battle with the devil? What, what did his benefit was his courage in the time when he had to face the devil. His courage and his strength would not benefit him one bit. I don't care how strong you are, how young you are, how courageous you are, how brave you are, apart from putting on the whole armor of God and apart from Christ, you are defenseless when you have a battle against the devil. Always remember that. That's why Paul tells us in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, he says, be strong in the Lord, verse 10, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you might withstand against the devil, uh, against the wiles of the devil, through his craftiness and his deceptiveness, you see. You've got an enemy out here. You've got a real enemy. And to defend yourself against this real enemy, you need to put on what's called the whole armor of God. And that's really not my subject this morning. But just take a quick look at what the armor consists of. You've got the helmet of salvation protect your mind. And believe me, the devil's after your mind. If he gets into your mind, then he's pretty much got you. And then you've got the breastplate of righteousness, which covers your heart right here. Then you gird your loins about with truth. The Lord said you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. The loins represent the strength of the, of the physical body. Then have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That shows how important the gospel, the true gospel, the good news and glad tidings of God's word is to the Lord's people as they walk here in the life that your feet are used for walking, but they be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then you got the sword of the Spirit, which is the written word of God. And you got the shield of faith that you quench the fiery darts of who? Of the wicked. The wicked is shooting fiery darts every single day, and you'll always be able to defend yourself against them and deflect them if you got the shield of faith in your hand. And then above all, he says, prayer. So here's the armor of God. Notice nothing for the back. God expects his people to always be going forward. Remember Lot's wife. The Lord told his disciples, remember Lot's wife. I believe the Lord's giving uh, sanction to the book of Genesis there, isn't he? 
He's giving sanction to a real person who lived uh, back in the days of Abraham and Lot. Lot's uh, wife, they left there. The angels told them specifically not to look back. Lot's wife looks back. She turned to a pillow of salt. The Lord told them to remember Lot's wife. And then the Lord says concerning discipleship that no man who put his hands to the plow and looketh back is fit or is worthy for the kingdom of God. God doesn't want you looking back. He wants you looking forward. You can't do anything about the history anyway, can you? What, what are you going to do about changing everything from yesterday? You, you got an idea for that? Got a plan for that? You know, all the mistakes you made yesterday and last week, you got a plan how you're going to undo all that? Correct all that? I don't think so. If you do, you need to write a book and get wealthy. All right? Yeah, I don't think you got a plan for that. So the Lord wants his people moving forward. Now, the Apostle Paul was a man who believed in the devil. In 2 Corinthians 2, 11, you're going to find where he says, we are not ignorant of his devices. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, he says, there shall be apostles, uh, false apostles and prophets and deceitful workers. He said, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. If that be true, his ministers. And I want you to notice this, his ministers, Satan has his ministers. His ministers also shall be transformed into ministers of righteousness. They will appear to be righteous, appear to be representing God, but they're not. They're in the hand of the devil. See, there's always a mastermind. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had numerous enemies while he walked here. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, scribes, and elders were all his enemies. But there was a mastermind behind all those enemies, the devil himself. Unfortunately, you know, we're right here on the eve of well, 9-11. And I'm sure, we, you know, we will never forget what happened on 9-11, right? Well, you, you ever heard them talk about the guy, I can't pronounce his name if I had to. Anyway, he was the mastermind behind that plan. There was a mastermind. There's always a leader, and the devil is the mastermind. But all the evil workers here in this world, he's the mastermind behind them, and he's got ministers of righteousness without number. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only being that is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. The devil is not. It may seem like it, but he's not. He's not omnipresent. But he's got enough agents. He's got enough workers under him to be worldwide, so he has worldwide influence. The devil's been on the scene since the very beginning. Come over to the book of Genesis chapter 3. We find him on the scene as a serpent, right? And I want you to notice here, nobody's off limits. In the next few minutes, I want you to pay attention to this real close. Nobody's off limits. I don't care who you are, you're not off limits. The very first man and woman to ever live upon the face of this earth, two people apart from Christ, lived for a period of time without sin in their life, was Adam and Eve. Did he shy away from them? He did not. He approached Adam through Eve. And you read over in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, where Paul says uh, that uh, Adam was first formed and then Eve. That's the order. And it says... Uh, Adam was not deceived. The woman being in the seed was in the transgression, but Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived in what he did. The woman was. When Satan approached the woman, sin had not entered in this world. He approached the very first man, the very first woman, the very first two people, and these two people had never sinned in this world here. But he approached them. As a result of his influence through Eve, when he spoke to her, you know, he... 
she told him what would happen if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. The devil says, thou shalt surely not die, put the N-O-T right in the middle of it. Thou shalt not die. What happened? He died, didn't he? God is always true and the devil is always a liar. God's truth personified, the devil is a liar personified. When he ate of that tree, sin entered the world. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore, but one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Then there was a man by the name of David. You ever read of him? A man after God's own heart. The only person in the entire Bible that that's, uh, that expression applies to. David was a man of God's, after God's own heart. Did the devil leave him alone? You come over and read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll find there was a time when kings uh, were supposed to be off of war, and, and we find where he was not where he was supposed to be, number one. He was still there in the palace. And that evening he gets up and he looks out and he sees a woman next, next to him over there. And he's tempted here. The devil's in all of this. He's tempted right here. And you know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? You know how that ended up. David commits adultery. He winds up committing murder. He lied. He deceived. One thing and another, tried to cover his tracks, tried to cover his sin, and we know that never works. That never works. So a man after God's own heart was not off limits. Now look at the strongest man who ever lived. His name was Samson. I like reading the book of Judges and read about Samson's life. He was something else, wasn't he? Taking 300 foxes and tying their tails together, putting firebrands in them, and sent them out in the cornfield of the Philistines. <laughs> what a sight that must have been. Oh, what a sight that must have been. Took the jawbone of an ass and slew a thousand Philistines with it. Man of super, superhuman strength that God gave unto him. The, the strongest man who ever lived. Did the devil leave him alone? You know the story of Samson, how it all wound up? Devil didn't leave Samson alone. And then we have the wisest man who ever lived. His name is Solomon. We already given you this morning two passages from Proverbs. The wisest man who ever lived. I mean, people from all kings and from all nations all around the world came to where Samson was to hear, his, hear of his wisdom. The Queen of Sheba came to hear of his wisdom. She'd heard of all his great acts, all his great messages, his works, one thing or another. And she traveled many, many miles, came a great distance. She didn't fly, she didn't take a train, she didn't take a car. She had to travel many, many miles on hard, dusty, bumpy roads, difficult conditions to get to a place where Solomon's at because she'd heard a report about this man's wisdom and his works. She wasn't disappointed. She says, well, the half has not yet been told me. What happened? What happened to him? What happened to Solomon? Read the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. The first 10 chapters of 1 Kings are glowing reports on his life. But the Lord had said earlier that kings, those in positions of power, should not multiply horses, they should not multiply gold, and they should not multiply wives, and Solomon became guilty of all three. When you start reading 1 Kings chapter 11, it says he married many wives, uh, had uh, 700 concubines, 300 wives. That was an expensive Christmas, wouldn't you say? I'd like to take a vacation with that many people. But anyway, it says these women turned his heart away from God. 
they turned his, his heart away from God, from serving God. You don't think Satan was that lion crouched behind the, the bushes back there in his day? I guarantee he was. He didn't leave the wisest man alone. He didn't leave the strongest man alone. He didn't leave the first man alone. He didn't leave a man after God's own heart alone. And then you come to the book of Job. Read the first two chapters of Job. Job was a perfect man. Notice the description of Job in Job 1.1. It says Job was a perfect man and upright. Perfect and upright. Morally speaking, he was upright. It said he feared God and he eschewed evil, which means he declined evil and despised evil. He prayed for his children. And then we find when the sons of God gathered together, the Bible tells about that, verses 6 or 7, it says then Satan, it says, came in the midst of them. Came right along with them. Came in the midst of them. And the word Satan there, you got two references for it in the center point of your Bible. One means adversary, and the other means just, again, he just traveled, came right up in the midst of them. Satan loves to go to church. You know that? Satan is a church goer. Oh, yeah, he is. Satan will ride right in the car with you. You'll start off on the way to church feeling good. Next thing you know, you and your wife are getting a little bickering. You know, uh, in time you're getting there, you almost want to turn around and go back home. You ever, that ever happened to you? Oh, he'll come and sit right down the pew with you. Oh, he'll get in your mind. He'll get you thinking about things yesterday and things about tomorrow. And the first thing you know, the church is over and you don't know one word the preacher said. He doesn't want you to know what the preacher said. He'll get you, he'll, get, he'll plague you with a suspicious mind. Thinking about things you shouldn't be thinking about. Observing things you shouldn't be observing. Having a neg negative aspect to it. Satan loves to go to church. He loves to go to church. He doesn't want the Lord's people to be in harmony. He wants the Lord's people to have peace. He wants them to be disruptive. That's what the, he wants to assist them, just like he did the apostles. He hadn't changed his tactics one bit since the beginning of time. He's a church goer. Did he leave the apostles alone? Well, we already got Peter before us here. We're already talking about Judas. So you got Peter before us. Already got Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Paul said, I to come unto you once and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, the wonderful great apostle Paul, who wrote 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, the greatest evangelist who ever walked the shores of time, constituted church, started churches all over the known world of that day, if he could be hindered by the devil, don't you think you can be? Of course you could be and have been. And I've been hindered by the devil. Good intentions about something, next thing you know, didn't, didn't happen. I got hindered somehow or another. I look back on it, nobody's fault but my own. I did this once and again, but Satan hath hindered us. And then what about the Son of God? You ever think about that? The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he off limits? He's been the Lord's arch enemy from the very beginning. We go back to Genesis 3 and 15, and here's what the Lord himself said unto, unto the serpent. He said, the seed of the woman, that be the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent shall bruise the heels of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. There's a prophetic statement about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, and what he would accomplish. He'd be victorious when he came in this world. Uh, that was worth telling you about just this morning. 
right? The seed of the woman, Jesus, that's his virgin birth. Jesus bruised the head of the seed of the serpent, total victory. But the seed of the serpent bruised the heels of the Lord Jesus Christ. He afflicted our Savior while he was here in rousing up the enemy on a daily basis against him. Finally, literally bruising his heels when he was nailed to a cross. He's been his archimony since the very beginning. When Jesus was under two years of age, a decree went out by Herod that all the, all the children of Bethlehem should be slain. That was an effort to destroy Jesus. How many times did Jesus cast out devils and unclean spirits out of people? That's nothing but the work of the devil, but the Lord always was victorious. He never failed in any of that, not one time. But let's go to Matthew chapter 4 just for a moment. And you find where the Lord went 40 days without anything to eat. He's led of the Spirit up to the top of a mountain, and there he meets with a tempter, the devil himself. And the very first thing the devil says to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast these stones into bread. The Lord replied, giving us an example here, how to defend ourselves, putting on the whole armor of God. The Lord replied out of the book of Deuteronomy, as it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right, that battle is taking place, and Jesus won. He then takes to the top of the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple. It says, cast thyself down. It's written in the Psalms, and it is. Cast thyself down. Uh, it says, well, the angel shall come and, uh, under thee and lift thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Yep, that's, that's right. The devil quoted that. Here's what the Lord said. The Lord said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. To do that purposely would tempt the Lord. There's a lot of things the Lord can do to deliver me, but if I just say, well, he'll take care of me and I live recklessly and irresponsibly, I'm tempting the Lord. And the Lord's not pleased with that. So then he takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Say, if you'll just fall down and worship me, I'll give them to you. Notice that he appealed to where he thought he was the weakest at. He hadn't eaten in 40 days to appeals to his hunger. Don't you think the Lord was hungry? The Lord got hungry just like you do. The Lord got thirsty, he got hungry, he got weary, he got tired. He had feelings, he had emotions, etc., etc., exactly like you do. Then he appealed to what would be the pride of man. All these kingdoms, you know, that have all this wealth, one thing and another. He was, a, he was appealing to a man that had a sinful nature, but see, Jesus Christ didn't have a sinful nature because he's sinless. And the Lord said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So he attacked Christ. He attacked the Son of God. And I'm going to tell you, when he hung upon a cross, suspended between heaven and earth, when he made an offering, sacrifice on Calvary, it might have looked like defeat, but I'm telling you, it was victory. It might look like the devil had won. He had not. The devil had been destroyed. You find in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says, um, Wherefore, as the children of partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the saying that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The Lord destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil, by death itself. And then three days later, we find the Lord emerging victorious out of that grave over death, hell, sin, victorious, so that one day you can do the same. I tell you, when I leave the cemetery, my friends, after being there and watching a loved one being placed into the earth, I don't leave depressed. 
Oh, I may leave sad, but I don't leave depressed. Because no, this is just a temporary thing. And <laughs> this is just a little temporary thing. The Lord's got all this taken care of, you see. And the Lord's going to come back, and He's going to speak, and grace is going to open, body's going to come out, be reunited with soul and spirit, taken home to be with the Lord in glory. Uh, why should we be, why should we leave the cemetery depressed? Sad? Yes. Yeah. Depressed? No. No, indeed. Now let's get back to Peter just for a moment. All right, he says, Simon, Simon. He calls him by his name that he gave him, that he had by birth. He did not call him by the name that he gave him. The Lord gave him the name of Cephas, which means stone, which literally means Peter. He didn't call him of that. But I want to go to John chapter 21 just for a moment. In John chapter 21, you got a chapter divided into two parts. In the first part, we have Peter pictured as the fisherman. The second part, we got Peter pictured as a shepherd. After the Lord, after those disciples went fishing and didn't catch anything all night. And the Lord appeared on the scene and told them to cast the net on the right side. And when they did, they caught a net full of great fishes, 153. My question to you is this, what was the difference between failure and success? The answer is the width of the ship. That was the difference between success and failure. One side of the ship, failure. Other side of the ship, victory, success. The Lord knew where the fish were. Apparently they didn't. They'd caught nothing, but the Lord made sure they didn't catch anything. He just moved those fish right around to the other side of the ship. <laughs> I love that. Just around to the other side of the ship. They didn't, he, he didn't intend for them to catch anything that night. <laughs> I'm so happy to preach to you about the providence of God. I'm so happy to present to you a God of gracious providence who can inter, intervene and override and overrule. And when you're where you shouldn't be, he can just reach right in and take care of you. Uh, when uh, you're trying to be successful apart from him, he can make sure you fail at it. The Lord can guarantee failure or guarantee success. What was the difference between success and failure? The width of the ship. So, the Lord's on shore and he's got fish. He's got coals of fire and he's done cooked up a meal. What did he tell those disciples? He says, come and die. Come and die. So they come on the shore, and they sit down, and they eat together. You ever thought about what it'd be like to have had a meal with Jesus? <laughs> have a meal with Jesus. Those two on the road to Emmaus had a meal with Jesus. And the Lord revealed himself to him, and then he just vanished out of their sight, and they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he was yet with us? And here we find those disciples having a meal with Jesus, but somehow or another, I kind of think it was quiet. I don't think anybody was saying anything. First of all, they, they knew, the Lord knew, they were fishing for fish when they weren't supposed to be. And they caught nothing on their own, caught all these great fishes by the Lord, and now the Lord has invited them on the shore for a meal, and they're dining. I just got kind of have a feeling it was probably quite time. Then the Lord addressed Peter. He says, Simon, Simon again. And he asked him a piercing question. And this is the question I'm going to ask myself and I'm going to ask you. Lovest thou me more than these? Lovest thou me more than these? There's two words for love in the scripture. One comes to the word, a Greek word, agapio or agape. And one comes from the word philio. They're kin, they're close, but they're different. 
The agape love is a sacrificial love. It's a, a love of great extent. The greatest type of love that you could possibly ever have. That's what the word agapio, agape means. Fideo love is also a strong word for love, but it's a little bit different. Now, the Lord is asking Peter, lovest thou agape love me more than these? Now, the question is, who's the these? There's only three answers to this, and two of them are wrong. Okay? Answer number one. Peter, you love me more than this, these boats, these nets, these fishes that you have been accustomed to all your life? Or, Peter, do you love me more than you love the other apostles? Or, Peter, do you love me more than the other apostles love me? Now, I think that's the answer. You see, Peter was the spokesman for the group, but Peter was always speaking in a self-confident, boastful way, wasn't he? Just like he does right here, when he says, Lord, I'll go with you to the prison. I'll go with you all the way to death. Though he had said on a previous occasion, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be right there. Lovest thou me with this sacrificial love, this agape love? You lovest thou me more than these? Peter replies with a filial love. He said, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Lord said, well, feed my lambs. He's going to go from a fisherman to a shepherd. And then he asked him again. He said, Peter, lovest thou me? He didn't say more than these on the second one. Peter, lovest thou me? A copy of love. Peter said, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He says, feed my sheep. He asked him the third time. So why is he asking him three times? Because he had told Peter he was going to deny him three times, and that's exactly what he did. He denied him three times, just like he said he would, before the cock crew twice. So he's asking three times. Three questions to go along with his three denials. See, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Lovest thou me? Peter said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Peter's getting a little bit grieved here. Now, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. He says, feed my sheep. Now, let's look at that two words again just for a moment. When it comes to the love God has for his children, both words apply. We go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, and the word world there is just simply teaching Nicodemus. I got people among Gentiles as well as Jews. I've got a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the face of this earth. That makes up the world of John 3, 16. For God so loved agape. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Sacrificial love. You see it when he hangs on the cross, right? God so loved the world. He loved his people, his children. I come to John 16, 27. And the Lord Jesus Christ said... The Father hath loved you because ye have loved me. The word there is filio love. Now, just notice that the word because, when you see the word because, it's going to tell you what follows the result of what he said before. He said, the Father doth love you because ye have loved me. Now, does that mean the Father didn't love you until he saw that you loved him? If that was the case, he never would have loved you. <laughs> Did you know that? 
If he loved you on the basis of him, you see, him seeing you loving Jesus, he never would have loved you because you would never love Jesus. You would never love Jesus in your human nature. It takes the work of regeneration to enable you to love Jesus. It takes the work of the new birth for you to love God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. No, my friends, it's just a different aspect of God's love. The Father loveth you because you have loved me. That's the, that's the love that the father had for his children. How about the love the father had for his son? Go to John 10, 17 and 18 with me. And you'll find where the Lord Jesus Christ said, For the father loveth me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. No man taketh it from me. But he says, The father doth love me, because I lay down my life. That word love there, gopi love. The father loved the son with that sacrificial love because the son was going to become an offering and a sacrifice. That's how he loved him. But in John 5, 20, it says that the Lord, that the father loved the son and showed him what he was going to do as filio love. Now, what about our love for each other? What kind of love do we have for each other? I've did a real exhaustive search on this. And everywhere it speaks about the Lord's children loving each other is agape love, sacrificial love. There might be a verse somewhere where it teaches the filio love, but it's always I've found agape love. I hadn't found the filio love yet. Now that'd be okay. The word, the word Philadelphia comes from, the city, um, you know, brotherly love. <laughs> Agape love. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his disciples and said, This is a new commandment I give unto you, that you should love one another, agape love, even as I loved you, agape love. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. You have love, agape love, one for another. How do people know you're a disciple of Christ? Because they see the love that you have, the sacrificial love you have one for another. But they shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Not for another, but to another. I may bring something here and have it for you. You'll never benefit from it if I don't give it to you, right? Oh, I got love for that, brother. Well, I think you'd rather me love, give my love to you, hadn't you? <laughs> Agape love. The Apostle Peter was converted. You start reading Peter's life after the resurrection of Christ versus his life prior to the resur uh, death, burial, and resurrection. It's almost like two different men. You don't see a failing Peter. You don't see a weak Peter. You see a strong Peter, a courageous Peter, a successful Peter, a victorious Peter, and his labors for the Lord. And he writes 1 Peter. He writes 2 Peter. He's been strengthening me all my life. At least for the last 50 plus years, he's been a strength to me. When I read 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and I, I see so much of myself in this man, you know. But if there was hope for Peter, there's hope for me. There's hope for Peter, there's hope for you. I have said many times that to have the identity of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't have it unless you have at least one apostle Peter in your midst. But we don't need two. <laughs> one is quite sufficient, Right? We don't need to. Now, if the devil didn't leave Peter alone, Paul alone, Jesus alone, Samson alone, 
Solomon alone, David alone, Adam alone, Job alone. He's not going to leave you alone. You know what David wants to do? He wants to have you and to sift you and sweep, distract you, sidetrack you, put your life in disarray. And I'm going I'm to close this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Almost forgot it, but I think it's too important not to deal with it here in just a couple of minutes. Now, Bible readers know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about the word charity. The word charity means love in action. Guess which love it comes from? Agape or filio? It's agape. It's agape. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I'm become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profited me nothing. Now I want you to notice, starting with verse 4, what charity does and doesn't do, and I want you to put your personal name in the place of it. I want you to put your personal name in the place of it and see how you stack up. Charity suffereth long. Ronald suffereth long. Does that describe me? And is kind. Is Ronald kind? Charity envieth not. Ronald envieth not. Now I'm using me, but I want you to use you. <laughs> All right? Charity falleth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. And that's a big one. Thinketh no evil. That's getting in line with what the Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 7, when he says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. When you judge according to appearance, then you don't have charity on. You don't judge until you know facts. You don't judge until you know your information. You can't make a proper judgment on anything until you know you have all your information and what's accurate and what's not. It thinks no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And look at this one. Charity never faileth. But where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. Where there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I came a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I, I am known. Oh boy, this is all a lot of rich stuff. But then we conclude in verse 13. And now about it, faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest, the greatest of these is charity. Agape love. Sacrificial love. The greatest love man will ever know anything about. Your modern versions, apart from the KJV, have changed that word charity to love. It means love, but the word charity is the proper word here because it shows you the importance of the kind of love that's under consideration. And uh, it's not a mistranslation. You just keep the word charity right where it belongs. Thank you all so much for your good attention this morning. You've been a marvelous congregation. I appreciate your prayers and your attention in every way.